So good morning and again, Happy New Year. And Carol, thank you for that word of anticipation, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those that don't know me, my name's Ed Schmidt, and I've been with Oasis since day one, and I've been hanging out with Dennis for a lot longer. This morning, what I want to do is, is, I think, probably shake things up a little bit for some, if not many. Um, we'll call it a paradigm shift, shift, and it's a paradigm shift that I think can be very liberating for those that may need it, for those who may not need it, but who embrace it anyway, and so on. Um, and speaking of paradigm shifts, as you can see here, we have our communion table set up. We're going to do that at the end. So put on your seatbelts, um, hang with me, track with me. It becomes a very good positive message at the end if you don't find it that way at the beginning. I think it's pretty good all the way throughout, but I'm biased. So <laughs> let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you again so much for the, the church that we have here at Oasis. Thank you for our pastor, Dennis, and for giving us both the, the means and the, and the will to let him have time off. Pray that he's uh, enjoying it, being re-energized, as is his family. Lord, again, I pray uh, for Ray and his wife, for the Kenya team, uh, for all that's going on uh, in our midst. Uh, but now, Lord, I pray you'll just uh, empty me of me, and Lord, fill me with you so that you can bless the study I've done and give me words uh, that, that communicate well. I ask in Jesus' name. So we're going to start with some construction work. And we're going to take one of the more common acrostics, or word thingamajigs, as simple people like me call them, in the Christian church, and we're going to dismantle it, and we're going to rebuild it. So Matt, if you want to put up uh, the first of that, you'll see that the, many of us who've been in the church forever know this one pretty well. Uh, the acrostic for Bible that we all tend to know is basic instructions, before leaving earth, right? Most of you know that. And I'm all about things that get us thinking about the Bible. I'm all about emphasizing the Bible in our lives. But i got to be honest, this thing really, really bothers me. If it works and it's good for you, fine. But for me, it's eh. And the reason for that is I think when I focus on basic instructions, it's about what I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed to not do. And for me, when the Bible and Christianity become about behavior, they become me-focused. And Christianity becomes me-focused. And that's where I start to try to earn salvation. And I try to earn God's favor. And what I do or what I don't do almost becomes like spiritual currency. So when I think about the Bible and I think about Christianity in that light, not to bash works too much, um, I have that uh feeling. And I, I come up with another acrostic for Bible. So if you want to move to the next one, when I think of things, the Bible and Christianity in that, that me-focused way, I come up with this. Behavior is the basis for lies of the evil one. That's a pretty strong statement. And the reason I do that is because if Christianity becomes all about me and what I do and what I don't do, I want to suggest there's two guarantees. First, I'm going to fail. Second, my understanding about God, the Bible, and Christianity is flawed. So again, don't get me wrong. I think behavior and works do matter. It's important. Your mission trip the things we do in this church in the way of outreach and helping one another, tremendously important. James kind of endorses that, right? He says, faith without works is dead. 
My problem or my issue is that works without faith is deceived. Be careful with that. It's not about me. It's about God. And faith has to come first. Faith has to lead. The object of our faith has to be our first focus. And that's where I get to my final rebuilt suggestion for the acrostic of Bible, which is basic instructions about the Lord of everything. Let's focus it on God. Let's focus it on Jesus. Because it's all about God, not us. And for Christians, it's all about Jesus. And it's all about the cross. So when I go to this sort of an acrostic and I rebuild this, this, this thing, there's a place that I go pretty consistently in my own time, in my own study, which is Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. So my key chapter or my key uh, scripture is going to be out of Hebrews. I'll read it on the screen. Um, I read NIV because it communicates well. Just so you know, I study New American Standard because it's more of a word-for-word literal translation. But reading chapter 1 in the NIV, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And kicking it ahead to chapter 3, he says, Therefore, and I say he because we don't know who the author is of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken in the future by God. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Good stuff. And given my acrostic, I zero in on uh, Hebrews 3.3. And for today, I wrestle with the question, who exactly are those who share in the heavenly calling? And I very quickly, as I've been studying, got into some really dangerous ground because I asked the question, who really is a Christian? And how would I know? I ain't going there, and I encourage you not to go there. <laughs> I hope we all know that's, that's God's call to make, the Father's call, not ours. But... In the book of Hebrews, and going to the, to, the, to the key verse, as you think about it, it becomes a, a question, and it becomes all about the importance of Christ. It becomes the role of Christ, Hebrews does, from the Old Testament through today, through here and now. And it becomes about, and the question of who, who are those who share in the heavenly calling, becomes about what we should do in response to Christ. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think Hebrews is a short enough book that maybe as a New Year's resolution, I'd encourage everyone to read it. Um, a chapter or two a day, five or ten minutes a day, and you're done in a week or two. So it's clear here that Jesus is important. But less clear is what it says about this me-focused behavioral religion. And when it talks about Jesus as our high priest in this Hebrews passage, 
This is a reference to the Old Testament law. Remember, Hebrews is to the Old Testament people. So it's a reference to the Old Testament law and, and Christ's fulfillment of that law. He lived and died to do the earning of God's favor and to earn the salvation of those that are his house. And it's by faith that we become his house. So this is why the, con- the passage sort of sets up a contrast between Moses as the law guy and Jesus as the overcomer or fulfiller of the law. So as I wrestled with this, I went bigger picture, and I kind of blew it out a little. And I went to a book that I've been reading lately by a guy named John Owen, who's very difficult to read, 19th century Christian genius. But he says this, and I think it's interesting. When a person's conscience, and I'm paraphrasing, has been made sick with sin, and he could find no rest, when he should go to the great physician of souls and get healing in his blood, this man, by a focus on works and behavior, against sin pacifies his conscience and sits down without going to Christ at all. Ah, how many poor souls are this deluded to eternity? And he goes on. And he says, and this is the usual issue with persons attempting the mortification of sin without any interest in Christ first obtained. It deludes them. It hardens them. It destroys them. Instead, salvation in this mortification of sin is the work of faith, the peculiar work of faith. I don't know about you, but that's deep. That kind of heavy stuff causes you to think. I had to think about it for a long, long time over the past couple weeks, and that's how long I've been working on this. Ultimately, I kind of got it, but I had to go back to basics. And when I went back to basics, I got to three fundamental and I think liberating questions. Um, For those of you that were here last week, they should be fairly familiar questions. Question number one is, what is the gospel? And Dennis has done a great job of feeding us a, a concept, a picture, a definition of the gospel week after week after week lately, and, and hats off to him. So uh, he's done a great job with this. And yet, I'm concerned that there's perhaps no other word in the Christian vocabulary that we throw around so loosely and that we do so with such a lack of precision. I don't accuse Dennis of that at all. However, when we do that, gospel becomes one of those words that that. I guess I don't like to say it, but I will. It causes so many people to think they're Christians destined for eternity with God, but who are actually bound for a very different and very tragic destination. So let's look at the word gospel. We translate it in English simply good news, right? And this is where we get into trouble if we're not careful. Because we're smart people in our culture. We're good at thinking these things through, and we're independent thinkers when we do so. In our church and in our culture in general... It's all about making things our own, sorting things out on our own, right? Well, that's called subjectivity. And related to that is relativity. And the fact is, Christianity hinges on exactly two entirely opposite points. And if you put up my tree, the tree is a tree is a tree, no matter what the people on the right are thinking about it, right? We've got to be careful about this in Christianity because the fact is, It's objective. It's not subjective. It is absolutely, uh, uh, absolute, not relative. There's no wiggle room in Christianity. Either we hang our hat on this good news, the way it's biblically defined, or we're wrong, and we're fatally, eternally wrong. So maybe after you finish reading Hebrews, you should go out and do a, a word study on your own, biblical word study on the word gospel, and wrestle with that. 
Uh, for those of you that, that would be blown away to even read Hebrews, forget about doing a word study. I'll do a Cliff Notes version of the word study for you right now. And I know we've got a lot of 20-somethings and young 30-somethings in the church who might not know what Cliff Notes are. So <laughs> Cliff Notes, boys and girls, sorry, were a series of these little short books that those of us who didn't like to read Shakespeare and, and difficult-to-read guys like John Owen would read to get all the test-worthy points and all the goodies that you needed to pass a test in high school. So think of it this way. For those of us like me that used rotary telephones with wires and we shopped in real physical bookstores, Cliff Notes is how we got through these bad books. Today, some of you who are learning what Cliff Notes are for the first time would go to your iPhone, you'd shop at Amazon, and you'd use Google or eNotes. That's the Cliff Notes. But I digress. So here's how Paul defined the term gospel. And I'm going to look at what he said to the church in Corinth. And I'm going to chase a rabbit and digress again. Um, Sorry, we're going to go late because of that, but that's all right. We're weeks away from NASCAR. We're months away from baseball. And unless you're Dave, you don't care about football until at least 4 o'clock when the Lions play. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, you shouldn't be in a rush is the point. Why would I want to look at Corinth? Go to my map of Corinth, please. Uh, and this is very difficult to see. I understand that. But Corinth is a great place to look at how Paul defines gospel because it was such a mess. Um, I should have brought a laser pointer, but I'm not that geeky. Corinth is right here on this little isthmus, isthmus strip of land. And it separates the lower part of Greece, which is Peloponnese, from the mainland Greece to the north. So if, if I'm chilling out in the, in the New Testament era, and I want to go from the Holy Land down here, pop up to, to some of the places where we have Ephesus and some of the, the letters, and then get over to Greece, uh, to Athens, and then I want to continue my journey on over here to Italy, I have a choice. I can come down from Athens and go around Peloponnese, long, dangerous haul. We're not talking about modern freighters. We're talking about terrifying little boats. Or I can cheat. And I can treat Corinth almost like a, a land version of the Panama Canal. They actually had a cart path or some rollers where they would lift boats out of the water, haul them across the land, and put them back in as a shortcut. What does that mean? It means when Paul's writing to Corinth, he's writing to a melting pot, a commerce center, a trading center, a nasty place that was under all kinds of less than Christian influences. So think of it this way. I like to go to movies or, or books or, or secular media and, and theologize it. So I kind of do the Star Wars theology here. Corinth was probably a lot like that bar in the first Star Wars, where Luke met Han Solo for the first time. It's just a messy place. And so the church at Corinth, to whom Paul was writing, was probably loose, probably confused. We see a lot of that in the history. So here's what he said. Go to a... Wow, Matt brought his A-game. Dang. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. And here comes the gospel. The, I think a great biblical definition of the gospel. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And oh, by the way, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve so people would know it. In the context of Hebrews, Christ accomplished once and for all, for all of us, the behavior and the works of the Old Testament sacrificial system of law. That's the big deal. This is incredibly important, but it leads to another good question, which is, so what? Or more importantly, what does that have to do with identifying those, my key question, who share in the heavenly calling from Hebrews? So question two that I got to is, what does it mean to be saved? Or from Paul in, in Hebrews, Paul and Hebrews, how does one become one of those our for whose sins Christ died and by which we become part of the heavenly calling? Here's another place where I think, as my experience, where I think a lot of people and a lot of churches get into trouble. And again, my experience, I have conversations with friends, family members, people all the time about faith, kind of what I do sometimes. And they assert they're just as Christian and heaven-bound as I am, but I don't have much reason to think they are. I'm not going to make the call, because that's dangerous ground. But when I hear things like, I'm a Christian because I believe in God, or I'm a Christian because I took Jesus as my Savior, or I'm a Christian because I'm a good person and I take care of people, I get a little nervous. You know, i got to go back and i got to think about that. And to make a long story short, here's what I think when I hear these kind of things. Believing in God just isn't a big deal. Whoa, lightning, come get me, right? But wait, the Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. Belief in God doesn't do much for anyone other than maybe give them a false sense of security while deceiving them. Secondly, the notion of taking Jesus as my Savior is even more troubling to me sometimes. It's downright dangerous. Putting it in the most raw, brutal terms, I think to myself, so what? You took Jesus as your Savior, but did Jesus receive you? I mean, did he really? And then we go back to the acrostics with the third thing, and I'll say no one can ever be good enough, and no amount of good works are ever going to earn anyone's way to salvation. Only Christ was good enough. Only Christ can do the work. In fact, go back to Hebrews 3.6. I don't think I have this one because we read it already. It says, Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold, hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. This one we do have, Matt, which is 3.12. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So it's great to believe in God. And I'm glad a lot of people say they took Jesus as their Savior. And it's great to be a good person of good works. But what matters is what you place your confidence in. What's your hope? What's the orientation of your heart with respect to God? So once again, I'm going to go to Paul. He's a pretty reliable guy. And ask the question, Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? And many of us know the verse, Romans 10:9. Bam. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. That might be a little too easy. I don't know. But what does it really say to me? What, what does it mean as I've been thinking about it in the context of my Hebrews passage? Well, I think it speaks to how Paul explained the gospel to the Corinthians, and it speaks to the Hebrews' thought about where we put our confidence and our hope. So I, what I think I want to do is I want to go back to the cross as we start our new year. And I want to think about what it represents. And, and the cross, I hope you know, 
is our tangible symbol of the gospel. What, what happened here is a once and for all amazing and entirely personal thing. It had everything to do, listen to this, everything to do with behavior and earning salvation or earning God's favor. But it was Christ on the cross that accomplished these things, not us. It's because of the gospel that we have access to salvation. God sent himself, as I hope you know, in the form of a fully human son to earth to be one of us, just like you and me. To experience all the temptations, all the misery that our fallen human condition brings with it. And Christ the Son endured that while exhibiting all, all, the attributes of God. Not the least of which are love, compassion, and of course, sinless perfection. And he exhibited God's attribute of justice, and this is important for salvation, by going to the cross and being crucified, and dying as that once and for all sacrifice to exact God's justice for the sins of mankind. The spilling of his blood, thinking about Hebrews, is a beautiful picture of the Old Testament requirements that remission of sin requires blood, and that any covenant, like the one we supposedly enter into with Jesus, or with God through Jesus, is sealed by the sacrificing of an animal and the spilling of that sacrifice of blood. And then again, he rose to fulfill the scriptures so he could take up residence with God in heaven, right? And so that he could release the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to take up residence in the hearts of those who are Christian. It's only through faith in the object of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and the embrace of Christ's gospel work that we're saved. Then and only then, it's by the Spirit that we're rightly led to the work, the behavior, of overcoming sin and the work, the behavior, of doing good. So yeah, a, a great many of us believe in God. A great many of us believe, even in our hearts, that God raised him, uh, raised Jesus. But then we've got to pause on this issue that Paul said about Jesus as Lord and ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? And this is easy and hard at the same time, right? Because the phrase, Jesus is Lord, just rolls off the tongues of so many of us, including me. And we take great comfort in it. But the problem is, most of us lie to ourselves. Most of us lie to others. And most of us lie to God himself when we say it sometimes. And that hurts. And there's three or four people here that can tell you that guilty. So that which you seek, that which motivates you, that which influences your decision-making, that which brings you satisfaction, that which you serve, that which is your boss, these are the things that indicate what's your Lord. And lordship is about complete surrender or submission. My Lord is that to which I'm a slave, to use a Greek biblical word for Christians, we're slaves to Christ. My Lord is that which is my everything. And sadly, again, there's three or four people that are going to agree here, I'm not unique in saying, I suspect, I'm not unique anyway, that these are things that terrify me. Because it just doesn't paint a very pretty picture. Especially in light of what Hebrews 4 12 and 13 says, which I think I have, yes? Hey, wow. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts of the attitude, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is what gets me. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So I can fake it with my actions, and I do. I can fake it with my works, and I do. I can fake it with my behavior, and so can you. But it's a matter of the heart. 
God sees the heart. So again, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, I think I have this one too, says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So I can claim and I can say openly whatever I want, right? I can do whatever I want. I can confess with my mouth that I believe, and I can assert to people that Jesus is my Lord, but it's my heart that reveals the truth. We can't hide anything from God. So the question today is, where's your heart? Does your heart reveal Jesus as Lord? And this is a matter of faith, not of works. And as usual, the Bible is going to give me some help on this. So as we wrap up, I want to bring up Matthew 22, 36 to 40, and suggest this might be part of the secret sauce. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And it's the secret sauce because this is simple. This is happy. This is liberation, right? This is an invitation, I think, for all of us to have a year of deeper satisfaction than we've ever had. It's the good news of Christmas. It's the great opportunity and hope of New Year's. So as you digest all this stuff, and I hope you will, it's an invitation to make 2015 a year of liberation. It's a year, an opportunity for a year of internal peace. An opportunity for a year of transparency and integrity, because you're not fooling God anyway. Neither am I. And it's a year that could leave you with joy that's from an entirely different dimension that has nothing to do with your behavior or my behavior or the circumstances that surround me here now. It's an eternal hope. It's a whole different dimension. So own the gospel. Embrace Jesus as doing the heavy lifting of earning things for you. Surrender or submit to Jesus. Make him your Lord. And rather than work so hard, will you just join me in loving the Lord Jesus and by that allow the Spirit to lead you? And I'm going to leave it there uh, because we're now going to do communion. And I think it's a good time while John comes up to get ready to just say, you do the praying. You do whatever business you need to do in preparation for communion. And uh, just celebrate the fact that, that Christ loved you. Thanks. Thanks.